I'm thankful to be back here with you, uh, but I feel like I missed a lot because we left at a, at a weird time and uh, thankful for those who worked hard this week and continue to do that and look forward to joining in that this week and trying to help rebuild our little town and, and uh, I'm thankful for that. Um, I, I wonder today, um, when, I, when we first uh, got married, there was a little thing, we like to shop Aldi's, Aldi's is our favorite store, that's the store that allows us to find feed a family of seven besides ramen noodles. And so uh, we've always shopped at Aldi's. But when we were younger, uh, there was a, a, a prescription, subscription, prescription, subscription that you could purchase that gave you meal plans for Aldi's. And so like for 15 bucks a month, it gave you like all these meal plans. You could go to Aldi's, buy their cheap ingredients, then go home and spend two hours trying to put them together and make them work and taste something like food. And so uh, some of those were great. Some of them were not so great. But uh, that whole meal plan thing has kind of caught on a lot in our, in our culture and that we like it when people just do the work for us and send it to us, and that's a good thing. Uh, does anybody else do that? I mean, not just a meal plan, anybody else do that? Like it's a blue box or whatever that sends you all the fancy food. Anybody do that? anything like that? No, no, okay. Well, there's a head over there, all right, very good. And so uh, John Christ, a couple of weeks ago, came out with a video uh, of his red box. And so uh, John Christ is a comedian, and uh, I wanna show you this as we start and introduce to what we're gonna talk about here today. So if you'd play that, go. Is my blue cord plugged in behind the computer? Yes? Well, very good. There you go. Gone a week and he's, his lame act still comes back from vacation the same way. So we'll, we'll work with that. Anyway, go online, watch John Christ's Redbox. Okay, it'll be a fun afternoon thing. We'll figure that out over break. Sorry, it worked earlier. I don't know. Uh, we'll figure that out. Anyway, moving right along. Forget that even happened, okay? And so what the point of that was is that the, there's those blue boxes that you can have dropped off at your door that are like fancy, vegan, all kinds of really good with fancy names. You got it now? Okay, sweet. Go ahead. There we go. Are you tired of these fancy meal prep companies offering you meals you'd never eat, but at the same time too embarrassed to Uber Eats McDonald's? Introducing Red Apron, a fast food delivery service disguised as meal prep. Just order your favorite fast food, then our drivers will pick it up, drop it in a pretentious box, and leave it at your door. Finally, look healthy and trendy on the outside, yet still be a lazy slob on the inside. Be honest. Do you want to return home from a long day's work to vegan shawarma with tzatziki hummus and beet salad? No, you don't. Sign up for Red Apron today and get back to eating what you really want. We'll even change the names of your favorite fast food dishes so you can feel better about yourself while eating it. A Big Mac meal becomes a sear-sizzled beef on a poppy seed-raised yeast roll with sun-ground lettuce and chopped onion with vinegar-preserved cucumber and precision-cut potato spears. A Crunchwrap Supreme and a Mountain Dew becomes ground beef with basil round romaine leaves and cultured cream wrapped in fresh shell tortilla with a beverage of field corn and cane-extracted carbonated water and orange juice. Let's face facts. Assembling prepackaged food with a step-by-step -step instruction guide doesn't make you a cook. It makes you good at following directions. You're hungry. The last thing you want to do when you get home from work is IKEA your dinner together. We'll even send you photos so you can post on Instagram so your followers will think you're more healthy than you actually are. Think about how good you'll look to your neighbors when they see a meal prep box that holds a swine-topped flatbread with tomato basil spread and coagulated milk casein. And think about how good you'll feel pulling out a hot pepperoni pizza. It's time to take your life back and start eating like you deserve. Red Apron, like Blue Apron, but with food you'd actually eat. There 
we go. So, all right. I don't know if that was worth going back and playing or not, but that was fun. Uh, I show you that video for several things. Uh, that touches on a lot of things that are probably true about our culture, uh, how we, the, the image that we like to project about ourselves. We like to let people think that we are doing something good and healthy for ourselves. Maybe we are, maybe we aren't. Uh, maybe the value we place on convenience is certainly a part of that. That, that is part of that trend. We love convenient things. Uh, but no matter how you package it, here's really what I want to talk on today and, and introduce the passage. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open Luke 21, where we're going to be, which is kind of an unusual passage to just into the middle of, but I, uh, it's something that I, I've, to be honest with you, I've changed my sermon three times over the course of the week, and, and I had good intentions last week before a tornado hit town to have everything prepped before we left for vacation, and then tornadoes hit, and then uh, uh, if you've seen my office, you know there's nothing in there, which I, I, the running joke was after the tornado blew my window out and blew glass all over the room, they couldn't tell what was pre-tornado and post-tornado, so that my room is now completely cleaned out, and so I don't know if I'm going to leave it that way or not. I may just put one book a week back in my office and just see how that goes. In about 25 years, I'll have the rest of them back in there, and uh, anyway, so that, uh, that went well, and so, so I've changed this because I've wrestled with, I missed last week, and, and that was a week that a lot of you got together, and, and you got to talk, and got to kind of um, just reflect on the week, and so I've been doing that in my own head with my own family from far away this week, and, and so this kind of comes after a culmination of two or three things that I was going to do today, that, uh, where we land here today, but I show you the video because sometimes the, the better, the more preparation it takes, the better it is, right? It, it, while we joke about having McDonald's dro- dropped off in a nice fancy box, it's still McDonald's, right? It's still not good for you, and that's easy. That's convenient, and yet, the good stuff in life oftentimes takes a little bit extra effort. Uh, the healthier you eat, the more it takes to prepare it, and, and, and the better off you'll be on the other end of it. Um, and in the passage we're going to look at here today, I hope that if you'll stick with me with this passage, it's, it's kind of a long passage, not a passage that you maybe think about, uh, well, what do we do with, with that in post-tornado Eldon and mid-Missouri and flooding everywhere and just a lot of chaos and stress for farmers and all kinds of people that are just kind of on the edge a little bit, feeling that pressure. I think this passage speaks something to us because Jesus is going to talk about an unshakable thing in a world that is very shakable. And, and I think you and I live in a community and communities and, and in a state and a part of the world where we've felt some of that shakableness of life, if that's a word, uh, that we all wrestled with that. We're all dealing with that, that feeling of which, man, things that I trusted on, things that I assumed, things that I thought would be there tomorrow, and yet you wake up the next day and those things are different. And, and that shakes up our confidence. It shakes up our, uh, our emotions. We deal with fear, anxiety, with, with stress, with frustration. We deal with things that we weren't dealing with a couple weeks ago. And, and so I think the passage we're going to read here today, I think it speaks to that. Because if we set the context of where this passage comes from, Jesus is almost at the end of his earthly ministry. In just a few hours, 48 hours or so, he's going to be crucified. And and so as someone who knows he's about to die, knows he's about to to have his time come to an end with his disciples uh, pre-cross, he wants to communicate some things to them. And this is one of the things that he communicates to them. And so the scene is this. Jesus is in the beautiful, uh, ornate, uh, enormous temple in Jerusalem. Set on the Temple Mount. Uh, if you go to Jerusalem today, there's a Temple Mount there. No temple there anymore. But it, it was visible from, from far and wide. It was the center not only of Jerusalem. It was the center of, uh, of Jewish life. Everything Jewish happened through and around and because of the temple in Jerusalem. 
And so Jesus and his disciples are, are near the temple. And in verse 5 of Luke chapter 21, you find this people observing the temple and commenting on its beauty. So some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said to them, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left upon another. Every one of them will be thrown down. He goes on to say, and they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And, and so we need to pause there and reflect upon when, when the disciples or anyone heard Jesus say, you know what, this beautiful temple that is so big, so massive, if you look at even the foundational stones that are still there today, uh, they're just a massive structure. This is not something that's just wind blows down in a day. This is a massive structure, took uh, decades to build and to, and, to, and to beautify. And so when Jesus says, you know what, a day is coming, when this thing that seems so unshakable, it's going to be completely destroyed. Not a stone will be left here on this temple mount. And of course, that makes people ask questions. They think, oh, well, what, what in the world would happen to the world that would it lead to the destruction of the temple in a way that there's nothing left? What in the world would happen that, that would cause that? And, and when will that be? And, and surely if that's going to happen, something big's going to happen before it to lead to that. And so it, it makes them ask questions because when Jesus says this, this is a building that in one shape or form or another, it's been a part of Jewish life for a thousand, a thousand years, right? Now we live in a country of 250 years of history or so. We have no buildings that are even close to the equivalent of a building that's been around for a thousand years now, sometimes the temple has stood brightly and, and been in beautiful construction. It's been useful. Other times it's been in disarray because of, of, of conquest and war. Other times it's been a very small version of itself, but it's been the hub of their life um, for a thousand years since the time of David and before even with the tabernacle. And so for them to hear Jesus say, a day is coming when this un seemingly unshakable thing is going to be shaken away that begins to make their minds flow and, and think about, well, what in the world would happen that would be like that? Well, the natural question is this. As we read the verses that follow, I just want you to go with me here. There's kind of probably some different opinions on maybe what I'm going to say here, and that's okay. You don't have to agree with everything I'm going to say here to get the point of what I'm going to say. But everything that follows in Luke 21, everything that follows in the rest of this chapter is Jesus' answer to the question, when is this tabernacle or when is this temple going to get knocked down and what are the signs of it? How do we, how do we know this is coming? And so everything that follows is, is the way I'm going to present this today. And that's okay if you don't agree with everything. That's fine. But from my perspective, I'm going to read the rest of this passage as if he's answering this question because I think the text points in the direction that he is answering the question, well, the tabernacle, the temple is going to get knocked down. No stones can be left here of this impressive structure. What in the world is going to happen that's going to lead to that? And so Jesus in the text that follows answers that question in a way that I hope is going to speak into our life about how do you deal with when the unshakable becomes shakable and how do you deal with the emotions and, and the situations that comes with that? Um, and let me just give you the end of the story. If you fast forward from the mid-30s of the first century to the, to the end of Jesus' life and you fast forward to the year 70 A.D., the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. And, and I, I really think that's one of those moments that we should probably talk of more because it changed everything about Jewish culture. It changed everything about that region. It changed everything about life for these people. 
because it was the center of everything they'd ever done and it was gone and never has been rebuilt since. And so in verse nine, you find Luke 21, you find Jesus saying this in response to the question, well, when will this be and how will this happen? And he said, now in the days to come, see that you are not led astray because in the days following my departure, many are going to come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand, but do not go after them. So Jesus understands his popularity and he knows that there's gonna be people that are gonna try to latch on to his popularity, walk into Jerusalem, say, hey, the day for the temple to fall down is now. So you need to follow me and listen to me. But he says, don't go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified for these things must first take place but the end will not be at once. In other words, there's going to be posers that are going to come along uh, in the next block of time from that mid-30s to that 70 AD that are going to claim to be Jesus. They're going to try to use this info and lead you astray, but don't buy it. He goes on to say, then he said to them, nation is going to rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Now, if you were to go back and read the history of what happens from the time of Jesus to the time of, of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, what you find in the history of that part of the world is records of, of massive earthquakes, great famines, and actually the book of Acts talks greatly about other churches in, in Europe that send money back to help in great famines that are going on in this part of the world. You're going to find great conflict in the Roman Empire. Uh, the closer you get to 70, the more... Uh, Tumult, if that's the word we can use, uh, the more conflict, the more upheaval you find in the Roman government, it becomes a very tumultuous time. And as you read history, you find that Jesus nailed it, that, that exactly what happens. But then Jesus switches gears on them and talks about, well, this is what's going to happen around, but I want you to think about what's going to happen to you. He says this in verse 12 and 13, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you. And they will persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And this will be your opportunity to bear witness. I want you to look closely at that verse because that verse has an interesting word that I've highlighted there that doesn't seem to fit the context from our thinking as, as people, especially as Americans. Jesus moves from the subject of the temple to the future of these disciples. And he says, let me tell you not just a few things about what's going to happen in the region. Let me tell you some things about your future. You're going to face tremendous persecution before the temple is destroyed. But notice what he says. When this persecution comes, this is your, what's that word? Opportunity to bear witness. Right? When everything goes crazy, when they grab you, when they throw you before kings and governors, that's your opportunity to be a witness for me. Now, opportunity seems to be a strange word in that context because they have no freedom to speak in the name of Jesus in this first century. Everything they say and they do is at risk of personal harm because they don't have the freedom to do it politically. And so that challenges maybe you and I, even in the world in which we live, that as Americans, we assume that opportunity comes with religious freedom. And that if we don't have religious freedom, that we don't have opportunity to speak. And, and that's not a statement about opposing religious freedom. I love religious freedom. It's something we should love and preserve and protect. But, but to think that because I don't have religious freedom, I don't have opportunities, Jesus disagrees with that. Because he says, you're going to live in a world, there is no religious freedom but you're going to have opportunities. When people are drugged before, when you're drugged before kings and princes and, and governors, and, and they start to ask you, tell me about this Jesus thing that you're living for, you're going to have opportunity to stand up and speak. 
And some of them, they may kill you. They may throw you back in jail for it. But the message is going to spread because you have opportunity in the midst of very hard things and hard circumstances to be my witnesses. And so he says to these people, this is, if you read the book of Acts, this is exactly what happens, right? Paul and Peter and others are led before all kinds of political people and led before powerful places. And each time they have an opportunity to be a witness for Jesus in places that you would never suspect them having opportunities to speak into because of the circumstances and so he goes on in verses 14 and 15 to say, well, before you go to these important places to be my witness, I want you to think about something. He says, settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand on how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter reminds us that we should be prepared to give a reason for the hope that's within us. And so Jesus seems to not, I don't think he's contradicting that, but I think he's saying you're going to find yourself in some situations where you may not always know exactly the right thing to say. And in that moment, I want you to choose to trust me. Ask me for help because I will give you wisdom. I will give you a mouth to be able to speak the right things in the right times. And I don't think those are opposing verses. I think they work together, that, that when you're pretty good at preparing yourself and thinking through and knowing the story of the Bible and knowing Jesus, and, and all of a sudden you're in the midst of, of, of a ball game or, or you're at a, in your neighborhood and you're just talking with your neighbor casually and, and your faith comes up, and you may not always have the, a pat answer to say, and that's that moment you say, God, I need you to help me to be able to say the right things in this moment to be a witness for you in this opportunity. But Jesus then goes on to say more, that you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. So see, you know what? This persecution is not just coming from outsiders. It's coming from painful places. That I am such a polarizing figure that even people who love you and you love, they'll choose anti-Jesus over their love for you. And they're gonna turn you in and some of you they will put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your life. So that's an interesting verse as well, because it seems to contradict itself as well. Because it says on one hand, you're going to be put to death. But on the other hand, not a hair of your head will perish. And I think the definitions in Jesus' mind of death and perishing aren't the same. For us, I think, well, if I die for my faith, I'm perishing from this life. But from Jesus' perspective, he understands that people who die, they may not perish. Perish is about what happens after you die. And so you may live your life and, and you may live a greater life in Christ after you die in this life. And so when Jesus uses that little phrase, uh, but you're going to be hated and they may put you to death, but, but I want you to know that ultimately your soul is in a much better place. You are secure. You are held. You are built upon something unshakable in a world of things that feel very shaky. And he says, but by endurance, you will gain your lives. And, and, and that endurance is not necessarily the idea of staying alive. It's staying faithful. And he goes on in verse 20 to say, but when you see Jerusalem, he goes back to the whole Jerusalem, back to the question he originally begins with. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. 
You know it's coming. When the armies are getting around the city, you know that it's coming. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country enter it for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. And so if you, you kind of have to go back and read the whole story of Jesus in the book of Luke to kind of get the heart of this. But over and over and over again, Jesus has pled with the people, especially the religious leaders, the people of Jerusalem, believe me, I am the Messiah that God has sent. Trust me, you have continued to reject. And, and God wants to use you as his people to be a witness, to be an opportunity for all people to come and meet God. Even if you go back to the last chapter, remember that, that scene where Jesus walks into the temple and what he sees is a, is, a, is a market instead of a place of prayer. And what does Jesus do? He cleanses the temple, throws out all the bad stuff, turns tables over, lets animals loose. It just becomes a chaotic scene. But his words in that moment was, this was supposed to be a place of prayer for the Gentiles and you've turned it into a market. Shame on you. And so they've continued to, to miss the bigger mission that God had for them. And so he says in verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And so what's he saying there? That's, that's a bold statement to say, you know what? This whole Jewish thing, it's gonna be put in time out for a little while. God's not done with them. There's an until there, there's a time. But until, there's, God's got other things he's going to do, but they're gonna be put in time out for a little while because they continued to miss the mission that God had for them to be a blessing to the entire world, that all nations will be blessed through them. They continued to live as if it was just for them. And they made it personal and they profited from it and they held it to themselves and they hated the nations around them. And so over and over again, they became an obstacle to God's work in the world versus an opportunity to do that work in the world. And so God says, fine, I'll, I'll take away my favor from you and you'll be putting time out for a little while until I've got some other things I'm gonna do and, and the time will come again for you. So God's not done with them. God's not done with hoping that they'll come to believe in him, but he puts them in time out for a while. Now it's easy for us as church people to think, well, I'm glad Jesus doesn't do that anymore. But then you need to go read the book of Revelation, chapter two and three, where Jesus talks about his presence in the churches as a lampstand, that his blessing, his favor, his help to be with them. And for churches that are continuing to be an obstacle instead of an opportunity for people to encounter God over a long time, remember what Jesus continues to threaten in that passage? I will come and I will take my lampstand away from you. In other words, I'm gonna put you in time out for a while because you're just not living this. You're not getting this mission thing that, I, that I'm on in the world. And so it's not just a Jewish thing. It's a church thing too. And if you look back through church history, times when the church has failed to be what it was, eventually it just it goes away. The lampstand is removed until a time when God ordains to bring that back. And so we ought not to be arrogant by that, but, but let's just look quickly here, verses 21, 25 and 26. Jesus goes into some dramatic language and he kind of pictures the, the chaos of the world when, imagine, a, a city like Jerusalem surrounded by Roman armies, all kinds of political upheaval of the Roman Empire, a lot of fear, a lot of stress, everything that seemed so stable just a, few, a decade before is now just in complete upheaval. And Jesus says this, and there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth distressed nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
Now, that seems like Jesus is kind of fast forward. That seems like end times kind of thing. But what Jesus is really doing is he's going back to books like Daniel and a lot of Old Testament books and picking out metaphors and imagery that talk a lot about just a world in chaos, about what it's like to be when your world gets turned upside down. And I think that's exactly what he's doing. Now, maybe you've been in a meeting at work or something and you leave that meeting and you think, man, that was a dumpster fire, right? Ever said that phrase? That was a dumpster fire of a meeting, right? There was literally not a, not a dumpster fire in your meeting, I hope, but that's a metaphor that says, hey, that's a mess. There's chaos in that place. And that's kind of what Jesus is doing with these metaphors that go back into the books of Daniel and other places and just talk about this upheaval of, of the fear, the chaos that people are feeling. And then he says in verses 27 and 28, and then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Uh, again, that's a picture from Daniel chapter seven of, of God's justice, God's vindication. And really what it means, if you look at how history plays out through these first couple of three, four decades after Jesus, what you find is that following the fall of Jerusalem, a lot of people came to, to Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus called it. 33, 34, 35 AD, Jesus shows up and says, hey, this place is going to get knocked down. This gonna, chaos is going to ensue. And there's an early church father by the name of Eusebius who talks about how there weren't very many Christians who died in the fall of Jerusalem because... They listened to Jesus. They saw Jesus. Everything he said, he, that he, yes, he is the son of man. And he proved it again by calling the fall of Jerusalem. And many of them lived because of that, because they fled the city when they saw all these signs happening around them. And so if you're in the city, if you see this coming, what are you doing? You're freaking out, right? Uh, you're scared. You're, you're, you're not sure what to do. But see what he says to the people. He says, don't hang your head in fear, but straighten up, raise your head because you know that your redemption is drawing out. You know that God is at work. Jesus has proved himself faithful and you're one step closer to being with him for eternity. And so in verses 31 and 33, he just gives them a little warning, say, okay, between now and then, here's what I want you to do. So also when you see these things take place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Again, it just confirms the idea that Jesus is still active and at work in the world. Everything he said was gonna happen, happened in that first generation of believers Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. And heaven and earth will, not, will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so that assurance, 30, 40 years after the time of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, just gave that first generation of believers an incredible boldness. And the Christianity exploded like it never had before because people realized Jesus called this. Jesus saw this coming. And if, we, if he was right about this, that just filled them with the boldness to go and to serve and to preach and to share and to be a witness in a crazy, shaken up world. And so finally, he gives them a warning in verse 34, but watch yourselves in the time being. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. In other words, don't fall asleep at the wheel here, for it will come, in verse 35, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So pray that you'll stay awake, that you'll have strength to stand, because life is hard. Life lulls you to sleep, and we, we, we kind of get lulled into a false sense of security. And so I just want to give you three statements. I'm not going to talk long about them, because I think the whole story leads to them. And, and it all has to do, again, back to our point of we, we live in a community that has felt things that we thought were very steady 
and safe, but all of that kind of has felt unsafe and unsteady and shaken. And so I have a big statement here. You want to write this down and probably read it slowly to yourself because I don't know if it's a proper sentence or not, but I'm going to put it on the screen anyway, all right? It says, there are times, number one, there are times when there are things that we think are unshakable. There are times when there are things that we, are, we think are unshakable and they are shaken so that which, is, that which is unshaken may be revealed. Okay, that's why I put it on the screen because I'm gonna mess that up every time I say it. Do you ever, you see that? There are times, Jesus says, this temple thing, this whole mount, to look at it, you think there's no way that would ever fall. No way that would ever come down. But there are times when there are things that we think are unshakable that God allows to be shaken so that that which is unshaken, the kingdom of God, our faith in Christ, our ability to find help and strength and, and to stand and lift our heads again based upon a life built on Jesus and the rock that he is, that which is unshaken may be revealed. And so as things in the world, a kingdom like Jerusalem, a kingdom like Rome, which it was at this time was in great political upheaval. Nero killed himself in 68 AD, just a few years before Jerusalem falls. And, and there's just a succession of four or five emperors. No one's happy. They don't know what's going on. There's all this turmoil and, and upheaval. And it's just crazy, both in Jerusalem and in the whole kingdom. Things that seem so stable and unshakable are now shaken so that the unshakable, which is the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven may be revealed. And people turned away from shakable things and they turned to see Jesus. And so when you and I live out our life, we've been reminded in the last few weeks and we continue to be with every little uh, news report that comes along that, that man, things that I gotta be careful. What am I labeling unshakable in my life? Is it my security, my life, my home, all those kind of things that I, at one point I would say, man, that's an unshakable thing. But boy, God has a way of reminding us, boy, that's shakable, and I need to build my foundation on something stronger, and that's Jesus and my faith in him, because ultimately, that's where my strength and security and hope and peace comes from. Number two, times of shakings are times for Jesus' followers to raise their heads and look up. I love that part of this passage where Jesus says, hey, when everybody's going crazy, when everybody's got their head down and they're afraid and they're terrified and they're frustrated and the world's falling apart around them, it's time for people who have their feet built upon a firm foundation of faith in Jesus Christ not to cower in fear, but to stand and lift your head and say, I believe and I know something stronger than all the stuff that's fading away around us. And that's why faith matters so much in a moment like this, because times of shaking are times for Jesus' followers to raise up their heads and to look up and to see, you know what, there's something bigger than all this shakable stuff around me. And number three, in times of peace, when we're waiting for those shakable moments to come, times of peace are times for Jesus' followers to stay attentive to what matters most. And the the ramifications of bad things happening in our community, I think Michael touched on this last week, is the idea that, man, there's, there's hidden blessings, hidden things that just drawn out that we value life. We value each other in a deeper way after you see some really bad thing happen. And it's just, we need those reminders sometimes to come and, and to realize that, you know what, this, I'm just distracted. I'm putting a lot more emotional energy into things that don't matter. And then there's a focus that comes when tragedy comes that we drop. I don't know what your schedule was for oh, a week ago Thursday after the tornado hit, but I had things I was going to do, but all of a sudden the things that mattered most quickly came into view and those things fell away. 
And so the same is true in our life. And so uh, I share that passage to try to make a parallel here and just simply ask us the question, on what am I building my security? On what am I building my life? On what am I trusting in to save me? On what am I trusting to, to deliver me and to bring me hope and security and peace? Am I trusting and leaning into shakable things? Or am I trusting and leaning into the unshakable one who is Jesus, who through his life and through his death and through his resurrection and through even his faithful promise, he has, he was showed, he has shown us that what I say I will do, what I say will happen. And so another day is coming. And Jesus says, be ready for that day too when I come again. And little things like this give us hope and encouragement to say, hey, Jesus was right about Jerusalem and I bet you he's gonna be right about the end as well. And so you and I have an opportunity today Simply in this moment of worship, to say, God, this is the place I want to build my life upon. I want to build it upon Jesus and my faith in his risen and victorious life because he is unshakable. Uh, tornadoes don't take him away. Floods don't destroy him. Uh, the uncertainty of health or, or business or life or money or relationships, all that stuff is shakable. It's good and it's fine, but it's shakable. I need something unshakable in my life, and that one is Jesus. So may we trust in him today.